now, our feature presentation. Florida Sound Archive podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kaiser, and we have a, another new episode here coming your way. Have a guest on here with me, Danny Morgan. Danny is a soundtrack to the Florida Islands, Sanibel, Captiva, places we probably all want to be right now. Danny Morgan, how are you, my friend? It's fine. Doing great. Good to hear. So uh, you're in your studio or at least a room that looks like a studio. Is that right? It is. It's a, it's where I practice and we have band rehearsals in here. At one time, we recorded some tracks in here that we would put on an eight track and we would take it to a big studio, dump them to a 24 and then build the whole song from there. Nice. We nice. A lot. We did a lot of Captiva Moon stuff that way. Here, here in my house on the atrium, it was a Tascam 80-8. So that's the same machine that Steve Winwood used for Ark of a Diver. And it took three of us to get it down the stairs and into my van and over to John McLean's house. <laughs> that's how we did things. Nice. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, and you've been doing this for a long time, right? So how many, we're talking like five decades now, you've been, uh, your career's been going? Um maybe a hair more than that i started in my first uh band at 10 and then um so it's been many many years wow <laughs> a, lot, a lot of fun a lot of fun it has to be if you're doing it that long yep it's great so 10 10 at 10 years old uh what was your first instrument you picked up drums and i was terrible it's a great story my father I was practicing and my dad said to my mom, said, there's two things wrong with this. One, um, it's really loud. And two, he's terrible. So at 13, my mom bought me a guitar. So that was good. That was good for everybody. I, I bet. Did you have any early influences growing up that uh, you gravitated to when you were learning how to play the guitar? Um, Buddy Holly. The first song I learned on guitar, oddly enough, was a Ray Charles, uh, What I Say, that little lick that he played on Wurlitzer Piano. Um, that was my first lick I ever learned on guitar. And then I think Rave On by Buddy Holly. The Ventures were big, and it was fun to play all those Venture songs. The Ventures played more of like an instrumental surf style, right? Correct. So we would do some, I, I sang a few songs. Runaway, I think, was the first song I sang is the lead singer of the band, the Del Shannon song. Oh, yeah. And All I Want to Do is Dream by the Everly Brothers. Good picks. I, I'm a big fan of uh, Del Shannon's early stuff, so uh, very nice. Uh, how did you know you were a good singer? I didn't. <laughs> I don't know. I still I still don't know. You know, I throw it out there and let the let the people decide. But I did have a fabulous uh, high school um, music director and 
and he made us sing all this really hard stuff. In high school, I got a chance to sing with the Cincinnati Orchestra, Cincinnati Symphony Music Hall. They needed a couple tenors. And so it was uh, for the May Festival Chorus. Robert Shaw was the guest conductor. And um, I got a chance to sing the whole Handel's Messiah top to bottom with the orchestra, which was one of a, you know, we talk about the highlights of, tell me a couple of highlights of your career. That certainly was one. But in the process of learning all that, um, Robert Knopf was our high school music teacher. And he was just, he was also the uh, vocal coach for the Cincinnati Orchestra to get him ready for the May Festival Chorus. And he needed a couple tenors, so he grabbed a couple from our high school. It was really fun. At that early age, were you traveling a lot? Were you going outside? Because that's where you originally were from, right? Uh, like you were from Kentucky, but then you lived in Cincinnati, right? Yeah, we Cincinnati was not very far across the river. And I did. That's a good question, because I did make friends. I worked at a music store called Dodd Music, and it was on Madison Avenue in Covington, Kentucky. And there were some Cincinnati guys um, who I met who were working there. And they had a whole nother world going on in Cincinnati. So I became friends with these guys in high school. Um, and uh, one guy was named Sandy Nassen. And Nassen wound up uh, getting a record deal distributed by Atlantic Records. It was Herbie Mann signed him to Herbie's first label was uh, Primitive Man distributed by Atlantic. And Sandy Nassen was the first guy to be signed to that label. And I met him when I was working at Dodd Music. Uh, Jules Jacob owned this store and it was a, it was a jewelry store. And Jules kind of took it over from Uncle Eddie Jacob. And Eddie was like, what are you guys doing? And, but he took in pawn stuff for guitars. And then we kept telling him, you got to get Fender, you got to get Gibson, you got to get Slingerland drums. And so every week, Jules, there'd be less jewelry cases in that store and more music stuff. And pretty soon it turned into Dodd Music and it was a wildly successful music store. But in, to get back to the question, yeah, that's how I met a bunch of guys from Cincinnati. Yeah. And did you put out your first 45 seven inch record, the O Captiva Sanibel Sunset while you while you were still living in Cincinnati. Is that right? Yeah, I kept a home in Cincinnati. And I also in uh, 84, 85, I, I built a house here that was a band house, you know, like big pink, you know, the, the band, the band, you know, when they were in Woodstock and they had that yep. house. Um, that's what I was thinking. I would build a band house. I don't know, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, it must have left a pretty big impression on you when you wrote pretty much a, a record, even though just two songs about Captiva and Sanibel. So what was it about it that really just resonated with you? That's a, that's a great, you got great questions. But when I first came down, um, Sandy Nassen was the fellow I just mentioned had the had a gig at South Seas and uh South on Captive Island. And it was um it was playing in a really high-end restaurant at South Seas called the King's Crown. And uh, he and I both worked for Playboy, um, Playboy nightclubs and he played music and I played music and 
and when in fact we were playing there at the same time um and so we could do the kind of the corporate thing you know we it was a coat and tie you had to wear a white shirt you couldn't wear a blue shirt you couldn't wear a striped shirt um it was a blue blazer white shirt tie and it was playing you know somewhere over the rainbow and when sunny gets blue and stuff like that of course i was throwing in some folk songs and some beatles songs but nasson had to go cut that thing with herbie mann in new york and he asked me to come down and cover it for a weekend and i did the woody allen on him i said listen i don't suntan i stroke you know, like what he said in Annie Hall when they're in the, he says, I don't suntan. And that was true. You know, I was a fair skinned, you know, light eyes, freckles, red hair. I was a candidate for bad things in the sun. And uh, so, so uh, anyway, Nassim wants me to come down there. And that's, I, I drove down from Cincinnati in this beat up van. I had this Chevy van that was just beat to death. And I-75 stopped at Tampa. So it was US 41 all the way down. And then when you got to Fort Myers, it was the road to get out to Sanibel, there was nothing. Then you crossed over the, the causeway, which had a drawbridge at the time, back in those days. And uh, you got over there and there was nothing on Sanibel, hardly any lights. You got out going out to Captiva, it, I, I thought it was driving to the end of the world. I thought for sure Nassen and these guys would have a sign stuck in the sand. I get to the end of Captiva. There'd be no South Seas Resort. There'd be the sign that said, sucker. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I got there and and I the you checked in, it had a Quonset hut. They that's what they had as a as a reception area for this resort, because they were just building it. They were just, you know, acquiring land and building different uh, condos and everything. So um, I got my little cabin. They had, you had cabins back then. It was really, really a lot of atmosphere. And I got up in the morning and I looked out the window and saw these palm trees. And I looked over this golf course they were building and he saw the Gulf of Mexico. And I went, ooh, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. This is really, a, I'm someplace really special. And um, it was, it was incredible. And I just met these fabulous people working at the restaurant and the people that came in there. Um, it was a fantastic experience. And, it, and I learned a lot about different kinds of music because in Cincinnati, greater Cincinnati area and, and in Kentucky where I came from, um, they were not playing uh, Jimmy Buffett. You know, I hadn't, I'd heard of Jimmy Buffett because I heard come Monday when I was in California. But um, I really didn't know Bob Marley or any of the Jimmy Cliff or any of that music. And um, I toured with the Beach Boys as an opening act, so I certainly knew their music. But um, the uh, all of that other stuff I didn't know. And these kids went to Jamaica like all the time. They, so they were they were into all that kind of great music, and that just kind of informed me uh, from then on to uh, listen to some of that and maybe create some. But a lot of it came from just being the soundtrack to my life. You know, windsurfing, you know, running on the beach. I was a marathon, I trained for marathons. And so I do miles on the beach and all that kind of stuff. So those songs are like pretty much the, the lifestyle I, I grew into. 
So you were an athlete at one and back then as well. Oh, that's a, <laughs> that's a, no, I mean, I, I was, I loved to run, you know, and, and in our high school athletics was very, very prominent. So, um, uh, I wouldn't say I was a, a terrific athlete, but I, the running thing was pretty good. Then I like the windsurfing and sailing and, and keep, if you can keep healthy, you can do that stuff and maybe get to be as old as I am and still do it. <laughs> uh, how did you know you wanted to make a place like Sanibel, Captiva, just the Florida islands? How did you know you wanted to make that home and go away from where you were in the Midwest? Go back to Cincinnati in the winter. <laughs> it's an easy decision. <laughs> No, it just, it just worked out. I was, and in Colorado, I mean, back in those days in the mid seventies, well, early seventies, I started in Colorado before I ever came to, uh, to Sanibel, but uh, the, the, there were great markets, you know, the ski resorts were great. The resort model was very good for me because you didn't, you weren't doing a lot of one-nighters. You're going in there for a month at a time or, you know, Colorado, we do a, couple weeks in Vail, a couple weeks in Steamboat. We go out to Durango and come back. We play maybe maybe you do one night in Boulder or one or two nights in Boulder at Tulagi or you do um, a night at uh, a hotel maybe in Denver or something like that. But but basically the the and they always gave you lodging and food. And in Colorado we got I remember working for Vail Associates, we got free skis and boots and lessons and all that stuff. So it was a, a lot of fun. And then you get to Florida and it's somebody wants to take you sailing and then you take a sailing course at South Seas, learn to sail with a offshore sailing, a famous sailing school. And you, you just get to do all that kind of fun stuff. I bet. And, and play music. Right. <laughs> what were the crowds like back then? Great. Why? There's no cell phones. There's no internet. And the live music was a big deal. It, it, it's a part of our, you know, it, it's a part of our culture, part of our sociology. And that's what's great about when I started playing music, like Paul Simon has his song, Born at the Right Time. He's right. You know, he's a couple years older than me. But uh, the, our generation for playing music, you, it doesn't get any better. We had great, great inspiration, the Beatles and <clears throat> everything from all the jazz and all the kind of stuff that was going on in the 60s. There were just tremendous things to, to inspire you. And then when you went out to play, there weren't a bunch of TVs in the places. There were no TVs, no TVs in the places. And, and the, there were stages and lights on the, on the entertainers. And so it became an important sociologically in our country. So. Born at the right. Thank you, Paul Simon. Born at the right. <laughs> what kind of early comparisons did you get from people who would come check out one of your one of your gigs? I think that, that that's a very these are great questions. But this uh this one thing that I think kind of stuck with me, and I I think it cap it really encapsulates the whole deal. John Denver goes to the beach because <laughs> I kind of had these kind of clean kind of songs and that kind of image. And um, 
And so, it, you know, it wasn't the ganja guy, but this kind of a different kind of guy going to the beach. More in, And I had that kind of tenor voice. Um, so that was it. That was the best comparison I got. <laughs> I can see that completely. That was one of the first things that I kind of felt and heard was John Denver, but beachy. Yeah. Yeah. Were you a fan of his as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, when I played in Durango, this is in the early 70s, I got a chance to meet a lot of guys that wound up in his band. Um, they were playing in Durango. I had a really good gig at a place called Four, Four Courts, but we all started in this bar down the street called the Gold Slipper, which was really a cowboy bar. I mean, a true cowboy bar. And so the the band, some of the guys that wound up in John Denver's band wound up playing at the Gold Slipper and they'd come down and see us playing at, uh, we were a country rock band back then called the Apple Butter Band. And um, so they'd come down and we'd hang out and John Summers and I became real good friends. And he wound up getting in John Denver's band as a banjo, fiddle, um, and guitar player. And he wrote a song on on an early John Denver album. Then he wrote a song called Thank God I'm a Country Boy. And that was on uh, Bringing It All Back Home, I believe was the name of the John Denver album. Or Back Home Again, something like that. And um, yeah. Anyway, um, so through that, I got a chance to, because then he wound up in the band and I got a chance to go to John Denver concerts and meet John Denver. And, you know, he was always very nice to me. He's a very, very kind, nice person. And uh, I regret that we don't hear his music anymore. Sure, I, I agree. How important was that for you to meet someone that, you know, famous and had a really great career and they were nice, you know, because in many cases you meet that person that might be like one of your heroes and they turn out to be the complete opposite. So what was that like for you? Oh, it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, great. It just, you know, they're, they're encouraging and it, it makes you see that there are regular people out there. Beach Boys were the same way. I cannot say enough about how kind and how informative the Beach Boys were to us. Just as helpful as they could possibly be. And boy, did we need help. <laughs> <laughs> what period of the Beach Boys career did you get a chance to uh, open up for them? Early 70s, early 70s. And it was a short, short-lived thing because Warner Brothers wanted one of their acts that was on their label to do it. But it, in that time, I certainly learned a lot and I did get one day where I had a, a really tremendous uh, bunch of things that just lined up. I was invited to go. We were invited to go out there and, and see the Beach Boys at their studio. If, if you ever come out this way, and we were doing um, showcases in California. We did the Troubadour and the Ice House in Pasadena and and um, tried to get record companies to come see us and see if we could get a deal. And um, we went out to the, the Brothers Studios. We went out there one day and it was the first day Brian was back in the studio. And so uh, it was, they were getting ready to record a song and I was there and and um, somebody didn't show up. I'll leave the details out. And uh, cause there were some things going on. If you see the, 
the movie uh, Love and Mercy, John Cusack played Brian. <clears throat> says the first day Brian's back and now Jardine says, Danny can sing all those parts. So I got a chance to record with Brian all day, which was really good. Wow. Is that up there with one of your highlights? Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, I call it the, that was my definite right place at the right time. And that's the day that they also invited us to, to go open up. Wow. And a lot of the, I don't think on everyone, but you may know better than I would, but a lot of the musicians who played on some of those most famous records of the Beach Boys was the Wrecking Crew, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, Hal, Hal Blaine, which I met him when he worked with John Denver. And I got to know Hal Blaine a little bit. And what a great, again, sweetheart. You know, uh, when I did this one record um, in uh, Cincinnati, and we wound up getting Larry London to play drums. I was talking with Hal Blaine about flying him in from California to play drums on that record. But uh, he was, they're just sweethearts, all those guys. And they sit in with us. I mean, sat, we were playing in Fort Collins, Colorado, and John Denver was playing at the college at Fort Lewis. And, uh, and, <laughs> And they all come in to see his play. You know, of course, I think John Summers drug him in, the whole band. And then, uh, you know, Hal Blaine plays, to get, gets up and plays drums. And all those guys are sitting in. And it was just wonderful. And you get to talk to this guy. And they're all nice and all helpful. It's, I, can't, I can't say enough about the nice people I've met. Oh, I bet. Did you have any moments during that early period when you were with some of these musicians and songwriters where you kind of pinched yourself and you were like, wow, I, I can't believe I'm, I'm here. Did you ever, did you have that moment back then? I think I have that moment now that I can't believe I'm sitting here on Sanibel talking to you and I've got gigs next week. Uh, but, but I think when you're in the moment, you're just thinking about whatever we're, we're talking about, whatever I'm talking about with them or what music you're doing. It's, you're fully immersed in in that. And for me, it's just mainly listening and trying to pay attention and figure what can I learn from this? You know, that's that's the thing. It makes sense. And then, you know, cause the same with getting up there on the state on the big stage. I mean, say, are you nervous about that? Um, I, I was nervous when I was a school teacher right out of college and I'm in front of those, the, the classic kids, you know. <laughs> Did you teach music in school? I taught fourth, fifth, and sixth grade right out of right out of college, briefly, until I got an offer to go on the road. Okay. What was yeah. that like? What, what was teaching like for you? It was great. You know, I, I taught inner city knife and gun club. So it was a challenge. And it was it was fine. It was good. And the kids are kids are kids, you know, they're great at that age. It, it, I guess that age before cell phones, before all that stuff. You know? Sure. In different times now. So uh, uh, so when you got on the road, what do you remember the first place that you went to? I think Durango was the first place. And it was a fellow teacher that had a job teaching at Timberline uh, school out there in Durango. She taught French, Spanish, 
and I think maybe something else. And she's the one that said, you should come out here for the summer. This is when I didn't, I thought I would still be a teacher, but you should come out in the summer and play in Durango. And she lined up this job at the Gold Slipper, the funky place. And um, so, and it had lodging and it had a meal a day. And so we said, what the heck, let's go out there and do that. And so we did it, but in the process, Vail Associates saw us and invited us to be the house band in Vail with the skis and boots and the lift ticket and the sign for any meal all day long, you know. <laughs> but, you know, we were real clean cut. We didn't drink, we didn't take drugs, we were athletic, we wanted to ski, we wanted to do all that. So um, those guys like Vail Associates thought they could invest in us. How did these experiences of you playing these gigs and getting on the road, being the house band, how did this help you when you were settled in Sanibel and you were starting a career there? Well, I think the main thing um, is South Seas Resort. It was called South Seas Plantation then. And because of my background, playing for Vale Associates, playing for Playboy, there again, they were a corporation getting started. Um, they bought quite a few places around. They bought uh, Sundial and um, they were in the process of, they think they bought the land or something for Cassie Bell and they were getting ready to build that. And the Mariner Corp, they were from Cleveland. And so uh, they just took care of us. And, you know, it, I felt welcomed there and I felt like, they really wanted me to be there. Um, and all kinds of people were surrounding us, you know, just really loving the fact that we were there. And, and I wound up being, you know, I would be in this. I remember the first thing I did when I played for Sandy Nass and at the King's Crown, I went away that summer. A lot of those servers and bartenders were going up to Cape Cod. And so they called up. Cape Cod, the place called the Lincoln Lodge. And um, they got me a summer gig there and got me a place to stay where they were, where they were working. And so I went up for that. And then I got a call from the people at South Seas that they just bought Casabelle Resort and wanted me to come back and play at Casabelle and put a band together. And um, so I did that and just one thing led to another. But at the, that time, in the early days, I was playing a lot in Sanibel and Captiva, but also continued to go back to Cincinnati area and play in Kentucky. Uh, we had a couple really good summers where we played on a on a barge that was parked on the Kentucky side, and it overlooked the Cincinnati skyline. And those days were beautiful, too, to doing that. But I would always come back to, to Sanibel. I don't blame you. <laughs> and Captiva. Right. And that's, so I would work mainly between those uh, different things that Mariner owned, although there were a couple one-offs that I played. I uh, played Tween Waters for a while, in uh, a short while, and then I played uh, a few other places on Sanibel that would pop up. What was the scene like when you were there? What other bands, what other musicians were pretty prominent that you were aware of in the Southwest Florida area at that time? Um, when I first started playing at the King's Crown uh, solo, uh, there was the Captiva band with this guy named Michael Latona. And I think 
Marty Stokes might have played with him. I'm not sure. But the Captiva band was there. And I got to be friends with Michael. And through Michael, I didn't know much about anything in Fort Myers or Naples. Um, I wasn't meeting any of those people because I was working at practically every night. And if I had a night off, we just didn't like go across the bridge to hear anybody like we do now um, across the causeway. So, um, but through Michael, which was an incredible guy to meet, um, he knew, he was from Miami and he knew all these guys over there um, that were great. He and Jocko went to, Jocko Pistorius went to high school together. And the legend has it, Michael was a bass player. So Michael taught Jocko his first stuff. Of course, Jocko surpassed anybody in the world. You know, he got a shot like a rocket. But but Jocko also played with Peter Graves in the band that they had over in Miami that I think Joe Namath and some of the ball players. it was called Brothers 3 or Brothers 4. Fort, it might have been in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, and so Peter had a big band. Peter was a trombone player. And, and he went on to be... Um, be the contractor like when when uh, anybody who needed an orchestra would come in and play uh, Sunrise Music Theater over there. Peter would like if Sinatra came in, he would have Peter conduct the orchestra. And Peter did a lot of that kind of stuff at Criteria. He wound up doing the beach, uh, the Bee Gees stuff. Uh, the first album that they did at Criteria, if I got this all right, before um, before Saturday Night Fever and all of that, um, they, he was involved in that. And then he went on the road with them as their band leader. Um, but I got to meet Peter. And Latona and Peter Grace put together this thing in the early days when I was at, at uh, Sandoval Captiva called Jazz on the Green. And it started in a back room at South Seas and Lindbergh Hall was like a meeting room. And they did the first uh, jazz jazz co concert with the big band. And then Peter would bring in uh, different people, uh, jazz, jazz people that he knew to be the feature. Uh, Michael Franks was there one year, uh, Bobby Caldwell, um, all of these fabulous uh, people that and uh and Jocko and uh so I got to meet all those people and got to know that scene and then wound up getting a chance to record a criteria with Peter and that orchestra all of those guys not Jock Jocko we had a, a meeting with Jocko with Stan Hertzman my manager and Peter and I and, and Jocko at a pizza place in Fort Lauderdale on US1 I'll never forget it Jocko was great. And so we're sitting there and we're talking about um, us doing this recording. And I don't know if we gave Jocko a tape or what, but uh, he came to the meeting and he said, we were looking at the dates. He says, I have to go out to, to uh, Los Angeles. I'm going to do a Joni Mitchell album. And, uh, and so it turned out to be Hajira, which is in my humble estimation, maybe the best Jocko bass work ever. I liked it better than than Weather Report and all of that. I just thought that stuff he did with Joni was just uh, so melodically uh, mesmerizing, just off the charts beautiful. 
So um, anyway, but I, and then Jocko sat in with us at, at, when we were the house band at um, at Chadwick's at, at uh, South Seas. He play only. We couldn't get him to play bass. He wanted to play my. I have a twelve string. I have this. Uh, this is a a night a nineteen sixty one Mose Wright twelve string. So Jocko loved this guitar, and he just wanted to play this guitar. <laughs> crazy. That is crazy. Wow. And he wanted to play drums. I think one song, one song at it when he sat in with us, we got him to play bass. But um, <laughs> it's great, great that, stuff. Yeah, that is really uh, those stories and those experiences are just uh, uh, amazing to hear. And uh, there's been a lot of stories of Jocko on the podcast from various guests. So uh, that could be my personal favorite so far. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was a character. And boy, he with Peter with that bit. He, he and Peter and all those guys were friends. They grew up, they knew each other. And, uh, and it was just great to be around that kind of, and see how they play together. Man, I mean, Michael Brecker came in and played with that orchestra and all these different people. Um, it was like magic. And the arrangements, these guys would, different guys, Stan Webb, and I'm trying to think of the other guys that write these arrangements. And a lot of them were teachers at the school in Miami, the music school. And um, so they really, they knew their stuff, man. They were, that was really exciting. And that jazz band was pretty tight. The Miami, University of Miami jazz band, they put out some really great records. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of good, a lot of good people there. Sure. Uh, what was your experience like recording at Criteria? That was a little scary. I'll tell you the scary. I'll tell you a really scary moment. I was fine with Peter and those guys. And um, I had a couple of my people from Cincinnati that played. Um, so that was comforting. I brought the, ba the bass player, uh, Cliff Mayhew. And Brenda Woodrum was her maiden name, Brenda Woodrum Foles came down and uh, she sang on uh, other stuff for me. And then when I was in Cincinnati and I needed to get, you know, a great girl singer who could really figure out female singer who could, she, Brenda was great. And man, she, her voice was so beautiful on that stuff. And it's nice to have two old, two people from home, you know, um, and then Hertzman was with me. So, and he and I were great friends. And um, so, there's, you know, so we're in the midst of all these great people. One, the first night we recorded a criteria, we were going um, into the studio and Cat Stevens, I, I bought time at night. We bought time at night because you could get it starting at midnight. You could get good things. But you, I had Alex Sadkin engineering. He wound up being a big producer for for Island Records and uh, all that. But these are the guys that were around, you know, how everybody's, everybody comes up from somewhere. And um, so um, <clears throat> we're waiting to go in the studio and I've got these guys out there, you know, and, and Hertzman says, you, you know, we're, we're gonna pay for these guys to sit in this lobby because Cat Stevens was in there and he wouldn't get out of the studio. He's eating watermelon and listening to a playback. And we're going, Jesus, Cat, get out of there. We need to get in. I got these guys and I got these guys in the lobby and we got to get him in there. That was the funniest thing. 
and, you know, I don't know how late we were getting in there, but you know, you, you want to do your three hours or whatever these guys. So you're, you're sending them home at least at three o'clock in the morning or three 30. And I can't remember when that ended, but God. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine going back to that now? <laughs> oh man. And I, and I'll tell you the other thing that really said that wasn't scary. So the scary thing was I'm in there singing you know, and one day, you know, I, this is before we went into the, we went into the big room and he had a full orchestra, French horns and everything for a couple of these songs. But the day, I think it's the day before that, I went in to sing um, my parts over the, they do a scratch track and then you go in and do a, a, a real vocal track. And so I'm in there in the booth, I mean, in the room, and I look up in the I look up in the control room through the glass, and Peter's in there, Hertzman's in there, and uh, all of a sudden, one beach one BG comes in, another BG comes in, and I'm going, oh Jesus, you know, come on, I'm having a rough enough time being in the presence of all this stuff and all of you guys, and then they're there, some of the greatest singers watching you sing. It's like, oh God, help me! <laughs> so yeah, I, that was that was a nervous moment, that's for sure. Your first album that you that you put out, uh, which I have the cassette here. Oh yeah, <laughs> Beach Live. That's great. I'm sure I'm sure that, that looks familiar to you. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's very funny. <laughs> Would you have thought in 2023? a European record label would be issuing a single for the swimmer surprise, or did you kind of uh, expect oh, that? <laughs> no, God, no. You know, for, first of all, for a lot of reasons, but um, that song is, is an unusual song. You think it's a record company wanting to, to do that and sign a deal and send you it. They actually sent me in advance. So I'm going like, and how did he know? So I asked, I wanted to see who was doing this. So I got a, a, a Zoom, not a Zoom, like we're doing a WhatsApp, you know, call. So I could see him and very much like we're doing, I could see where his where he lived. And, and this guy is so sharp, Rob Butler. And this Be With Records is a great record label. They, they're really good and they do really neat stuff. So I said, how, have you been to Santa Bell or did you see me playing or something? And he said, no. I said, this one guy I work with um, brought this to me. I said, does he ever, did he ever see me? He said, no. I said, so how in the heck did you find this? And he said, this guy said, we ought to do this record. And I took a listen to it and I agreed. And um, so that would be the last, if you're going to license one of my songs and think you're going to make money on it, it probably would be Captiva Moon, you know, Saltwater Kisses. I don't know. There's a handful of them, you know, that probably would be more commercial uh, that you can make money. But um, The Swimmer, who knows? It's a more uh, artsy fartsy kind of song. Um, I was listening to um, Adrian Ballou was also managed by, by Stan Hertzman. So Ballou, when I wrote that, Ballou was doing some really cool stuff. And he was from Northern Kentucky. We all kind of grew up in the same area playing in in uh, bands he had a band that called the denims that did all this Beatles stuff they were great so before he became the twang bar king as they call him <laughs> um yeah Baloo was but he's done these really kind of neat melody things and Joni Mitchell was 
doing some very beautiful stranger melodies and stuff. So I was listening to that and I, and the swimmer just kind of came out like that. And um, I took it to the band, my support band I was working with at the time. And, and we kind of kept goofing around. I had, I had a rhythm thing to it. And then all of a sudden, you know, those guys are David dust and start play all this kind of cool guitar stuff. And, and, um, and it wound up like that and went over to John's house and recorded it. And, um, and then McLean played that uh, pan flute kind of thing on the keyboard. And John sang harmony with me. And, um, and so that's how that happened. But yeah, I had no idea. And it just surprised me. And I'm very happy. And I really like these guys. You know, I think that's a, I'm hooked up with a good group there. And, um, and now I have to figure out how to play it live. <laughs> <laughs> One of my personal favorite songs, too, off of uh, Beach Life is uh, The Swimmer. So uh, this term may not have been used back then, but it's thrown around a lot now. Yacht rock. Are you familiar with that term? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a serious radio station. Yeah, I think it could fall there without a doubt. Without a doubt, it would it would be good. Um, I think it would be perfect. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you just can kind of picture yourself on a boat uh, on the water and having that on, and it just creates a mood for you. Uh, I think the swimmer would be great if you were on a sailboat and you had the thing was flying down the, the, the coast. You know, I think that would be a good one to have. Yeah. For that experience. Did you include a lot of those songs in your gigs when that album came out? Yes. Yeah. We played just about all of them. What was the reaction that people had? Because, you know, especially when it's a lot of tourists, maybe, or even leaving locals, they may want to hear cover songs. And now you're throwing in these originals. So what was their reaction like to hear some of those originals? I think it's uh, if you set it up, you know, Livingston Taylor, by the way, is a friend of mine. And he talk about learning from someone. He's he's the master performer, the master performer. And um so it's uh, if you set it up, you know, then then you can you can sell it. You know, you have to relate it to some something they can relate to your audience. And uh, that's I just don't play them or this is a song I wrote. You know, you have to get it. You have to do a, a certain kind of setup to be able to sell it as if they've never heard it. But then some of them, thank God, knock on wood. Um, have become sort of um, classics to all the visitors who come here. It is that that album has become in Captiva Moon. They've become part of their their uh, vacation. It's the soundtrack for them. So that's a uh, and there'll be certain songs. Um, somebody will. <laughs> one guy I know is it like when I wrote Saltwater Kisses. He thought I was I was watching him and some girl out in the out out. out in the water off between waters. And I said, no, I didn't see. <laughs> but it was like, you know, so all these people have these experiences that go along with those lyrics. As I did when I was listening to Jimmy Buffett, you know, man, I fell in love with that stuff living here. I you bet. Know, give me more, give me more. Mm -hmm. And I still do. I still, you know, when I listen to Jimmy's records, I have everything he ever did. Um, he, first of all, he's a world-class writer you know as good as anybody ever he's our mark twain you know and um and so 
Did you ever meet Jimmy Buffett? Oh, yeah. What was that like? Fabulous. Again, really nice man. He's very nice to me. Um, he's invited me. He's been on my stage, and he's invited me up on his stage a couple times. And um, But he's just a great guy, you know, and gave me some good advice. That I have a great story about Captiva Moon. So the second album, after Beach Life, did very well. Um, I think we sold about 120,000 120, of those, all included, you know, vinyl, cassette, and, and CDs. Of course, people don't buy records or buy, buy recordings anymore. They they don't even download it. Streaming's pretty much it. But um, Beach um, Life is pretty sought after on vinyl. So just as long as you know that. Yeah, the vinyl. Yeah, and I, luckily I had vinyl that survived the, the, the hurricane, Hurricane Ian. Every, all of my all of my product went out my garage door in the wow. six in six feet of water, along with a bunch of other stuff. But um, but the out my my vinyl survived because I had it in a safe place, so it did not it wasn't subject to that. So that's about all I have left right now. I need to reorder if I'm going to have the other stuff. But to get back to a meeting, Jimmy, um, I went down to Key West. I'd sent some um copies of Captiva Moon down to his their office in 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 uh, Key West and that's when their main office I think was pretty much on Duval right off of Duval Street there and I got a call from Jimmy's I think it was Sunshine Smith called and said Jimmy wants to meet with you uh, about Captiva Moon can you come down here and have dinner and I said sure so uh, Amy and I drove down and um, went to, he wanted to go to this little off the beaten path Italian restaurant off of Duval. You kind of go back to Slow Alley and there's this little restaurant, real quiet, nice, unassuming restaurant. And we're sitting there eating. I'll just cut, try to make it shorter. <laughs> and we're sitting there and, um, and he, I, he said, I really like Captiva Moon. I have a copy in my plane and and we got a copy in the office and everybody likes it but he leans over to me and he says you're too old that's good you know i was in my 40 i think it was about 45 or something like that and then he said when we finish dinner we'll go down to margaritaville and i'll show you this band i signed to to margaritaville records so we go down there and there's this band playing and i'm i'm up in the sound booth with jimmy and we're watching this band and uh and he says, what do you think? I said, they're great, man. They're fabulous. He says, they're a really hot college band in the South. They're, they play all over the South. They're a hot college band. And he says, they sing in English, French, and Spanish fluently. What do you think? You want to do them? Or are we doing Danny Morgan? I said, where, where can I give you my money? Can I buy into this? And they were fabulous. But I get it. You know, I get that the idea of national labels and stuff like that, it's it's a it's a young young man's game. Did you like having that control over your over your career in that way? Because a lot of stuff that you did was self-produced and self-released, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, but when I worked with Peter, you know, when when uh it was kind of nice to have somebody with that kind of brain deciding how your song should be, you know. So I'm always open to whatever, you know, if you get good people. Well, what Rob, what uh, Rob Butler did at Be With Records, you know, he wanted to do a B-side that was a, like a dance groove, 
So the 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 guy, I think, is one of the guys who liked the swimmer to begin with. Um, did a remix where they put stuff on top of the swimmer, the, the original recording, with this sort of incredible dance groove thing, and uh, and then he had these seagulls like doing all this wild stuff in there, which was really unusual, and more sound of the surf. He had, I didn't have any surf sound, I don't think, on on my record. You didn't know. And so he had all this surf stuff going on. So that becomes a whole nother market that I don't know anything about, nothing. And so for all I know, that thing's going to go out there and become some, <laughs> you know, and, and so there's another, and that's good. I mean, that's good creativity. Right. But you had to lay down the foundation for it. And and, and you absolutely did. Uh, thinking about your catalog and all those songs that you have written over the years, what's the one deep cut in your catalog that you wish more people would hear? Hmm. Golly, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, Tarpon Bay is nice, which is, uh, it's not a commercial song per se, but it's one on uh, this album. Which oh, is yeah. It's always summer. And um, so I think Love is for Everyone is one I recently, uh, in the last few years, wrote with Livingston Taylor, James Taylor's brother, who I mentioned is uh, the consummate performer of all performers. <laughs> He's really great. And, uh, but that's one that I think has some legs. There's a video of that as well. There it's is on, on YouTube. Yeah. And uh, we're real proud of that. It's uh that's good. I think that that works pretty good. Getting a chance to work with uh, Livingston Taylor in, you know, what was that experience like getting a chance to get to know him as well? <laughs> Fabulous. He's a great friend and wonderful guy. And, and uh, we talk about everything. So he's, he's a really, I consider him one of my, one of my dear friends, but um, I just, again, you learn so much, you know, from someone like that. It, I can't even go into it. the stuff I've learned about, you know, vocal. I, I get a lot of great vocal coaching from, from Livingston. You know, you just, you mentioned earlier, you're still playing shows and it, you said that's one of those moments where you're kind of, you know, you pinch yourself and you're still doing it. So why do you think it's still resonating with people? And then, and the fact that you're able to go out there uh, all these years and still put on a show and keep the people coming. I think it's a lot of it's those songs have been with them. You know, a lot of times the songs um, have been part of their vacation. So that's with the tourists. And then people who come here and they hear a song like Captiva Moon and they've never seen me or never been to Captiva, but they hear that song and they go, wow, that's kind of cool. That's where I am. Da, da, da. You know, so it's a uh, uh, right place at the right time. And, you know, my challenge, of course, as you get older, as all singers who get older, is to keep working on your voice and working on your, make sure you're keeping in shape, make sure you're not doing any dumb stuff and and um, and, and be able to perform because they're, they're, you know, they're paying you and they, they deserve a, a good performance. And also, I think... Um, the cover songs I like to do cover, and now I'll mention what I, why I like to do this. Oh, this is I get to see a bunch of people my age out there that I've never met, you know, that are just out there, and I'll say, you know, I played this song in high school, and we do when John when John McLean and I do Thursday night, we do this um, 
kind of medley, and, and I do a song, Help, by the Beatles. <clears throat> In high school, I could never figure out that George Harrison, da 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 that guitar lick. So I get with McLean, and I'm, and I'm uh, saying, you know, I love that song, Help. We ought to do that Thursday nights, you know, with the Traders. And um, so... <laughs> I give him McLean and like in 30 seconds, he's doing da 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 I'm going like, bingo. So we do that and I'll tell a story, you know, that I've always wanted to do this. And now I'm finally playing with this guy. You know, here we go, help by the Beatles, bingo. And then you'll see, and a lot of young people like the Beatles. They'll be, it's, it, you talk about, you'll see these kids that are like teenagers or 20, or they're early 20s and they're Beatle freaks. They love it. So that's fun to do that. And I try to pick a nice cover repertoire that um, that is fun. And also we do um, American song, we do uh, autumn leaves and, and French and English. And, you know, we do a little Django in there and it's it, that we'd kind of go and, and John does, John does fabulous uh, Sinatra stuff. And then we play instrumental. Uh, we do a Les Paul song. We open up with How High the Moon. And uh, that kind of thing that's interest. We try to be interesting and, and not real predictable. Well, that's good, as I'm sure there are people who may come out to see you perform uh, regularly. And uh, what's been the one of your favorite personal moments like, that you that, that you can share that maybe yeah. so, someone came up to you after a gig or even maybe even before a gig and uh, shared something with you that was uh about your music and how it meant, you know, how it made them feel. I think it, um, being asked to play at somebody's dying bed was a pretty interesting thing. Sanibel Sunset meant so much to this guy that his kids had me come over and do that in the hospital. Um, th those kind of things are pretty strong. So yeah, I got on the water and, and he uh, managed to, uh, hotel motel in Sanibel and was a big part of that scene and his kids um, became a big part of that scene as well and I was very honored and that's happened a, a few times so, oh wow and the weddings of course you know play this song at our wedding and when you walk down the aisle I want to hear this one you know so those are always great moments what's your most requested song at a wedding oh um Probably Sanibel Sunset, something like that. I got to think about that. Okay. You think about the <laughs> A lot of the weddings now are going, you know, Jeff, they're going to young guys. You know, they want these 23-year-old guys playing their wedding. Sure. So, but, um, but I'm trying. So, so a question like that, I have to think back a couple of decades. Yeah, that's all right. Well, you think about all the songs that you probably have played over the years, and especially is doing some of the covers. Uh to have that song requested that was yours, you know, an original song, how'd that make you feel? You know, that, that you made something useful, like anybody who does something useful. You know, you think about uh, the people in the medical field, the people in the, the education, you know, they, they do something that's useful to people. And that's good. You know, it's good to have, um, if you're going to create some, it's nice that it has some use. You know, it's it's not just you being, I don't know, something about you. Then it becomes not about you. It becomes about right. the gift, the gift of throwing it out there and, and see if somebody can get something from it. 
And that's, I think that's the reason to do it. Yeah. You know, I, I, a lot of um, songwriters, and God bless them, you know, because it helps them for sure. They write songs that are sort of therapeutic for them. But, um, and that's good because those songs also become songs for people who are having problems. Right. I've just been pretty damn lucky to not have a lot of problems in my life. That could be why you've had such a long career. I'm too. a happy guy. I'm That's great. You're thankful. Right. I'm happy. I pinch myself. And you're I, in a happy. You're in a happy place too. As long as as long as the the hurricanes stay away, you're in a uh, great place. I tell you, man, it's good not it's, talking to you and not talking about the hurricane today. It's great because live here. You know, everybody wants to come up and talk about that. How's your house? You know, and and then you say, how's your house? And, so all the conversations on breaks are all about that, which is needed. And that's, you know, that's part of what we do is we got to provide some happy music to the people that are coming here to work on their houses and right. they don't have a house left and, you know, that kind of stuff. Terrible situation. What happened as I mean, you're there. So, but not to get into, in, into those weeds, uh, you know, I think one thing we haven't talked about just your other side of your creativity is you also are an artist right i studied painting in school yeah i graduated with it my education was painting and education so uh yeah i i've kind of come in and out of that in different uh, phases depending on what's going on with how to balance it but there's uh, been some years uh, recently in the last 10 years that i've had some terrific luck with uh, my painting as well had a fabulous gallery in, in New York that carried my work and gave me some one-man shows in Manhattan and all of that. So that's been good. Again, another side, it's abstract art. So it's yeah. it's it's not um cognizant kind of work like writing songs. It's a whole you do you deal with a whole different part of yourself when you're doing that work. You know, a lot of people like to watch sports on TV or something. You know, you send me to uh, to the Dorsey in in Paris, and you know, I'm good. Uh, did you ever design any of your album art or anything that you've worked on? Yeah, I, I, yeah? yeah, I did all of all of them, every single one of them. So those are all in the old like Beach Life. I had to do before I had I didn't have a computer or anything. It was all the old um, paste up stuff, like they. Oh would. yeah. We used to do it for ads, any ads, and cut and paste. And I think the lines that are drawn around the pictures I did with a magic marker. And I would always <laughs> do my own logos, you know, like my my signature. And I yeah. did. And then the paintings become um, the paintings become lithographs. I'll do a limited uh, like that with without the without the lettering on it. Hard to see. But that, and then this is a, more of what a, the work I'm doing now. This abstract. This is this is the instrumental album, and so that's kind of the work I do these days. And all of them are available and and signed in number prints. As we kind of round things out, uh, I wanted to ask us a few other quick quick questions here. Uh, so, you know, you've been on the road you know, over the course of your career. Is there that one road story that stands out to you as? For good or bad reasons, it's memorable and it stuck with you. Um, when the Beach Boys first came in to see us play 
and that's when they took a shining to us and invited us out to California. That was pretty wild because the bartender I was in, I like to go in in the daytime and make sure the stage is set. I still do it. I do it at Traders. I'll go in at 10 o'clock in the morning or something and just make sure everything's ready to go for that night so we can just walk in and play and not be fiddling with stuff. And and um, the bartender said, hey, we're in a hotel bar in Denver, right? So the bartender says, Beach Boys were, were in here last night and I told them about you guys. It was a night off and, and they said, they're going to come in tonight and see you play. I said, yeah, Elton John's Tendon Bar. And um, and so, <laughs> so they, uh, you know, I get up to play. Again, that was another thing that made me a little nervous um, because um, they're playing. I'm thinking that this lady, this nice, nice, wonderful bartender was just jagging me. She's jagging me, you know. And um, how could they be coming in this hotel bar to see us play? So anyway, we're we're there playing, you know, and from here to the wall, um, they line up and they're leaning against, I never will forget, it was a curved wall and it was carpeted. And they were leaning against that wall and I'm going like, oh God, you know, I was so scared. But then they wound up sitting in and, you know, I had uh, Carl Wilson playing my, my that, 12, that 12 string. A lot of people want to play that 12 string. Sounds so, like it. <laughs> <laughs> they all want to play that 12 string. So anyway, um, it was a, a beautiful night. And then we wound up later that evening, Jardine had a song that he thought we could cut, we could record. And so we stayed up to about three o'clock in the morning. And I had one of those GE, you know, this little tape, little cassette recorders you take to class with the, with the buttons on the front. And I had one of those and um because that's what I use for songwriting and uh we stayed up and there was a spinet piano up in the mezzanine of this hotel and, and Jardine and I and the bass player sat there and and did this uh he would play it for us and, and wanted us to learn it and uh so I recorded the whole thing that was a pretty magical oh. I can imagine. You, you also sent me a picture of you playing with Kevin Nealon from Saturday Night Live. Uh, I'm a huge fan of that period of SNL. So how did that happen? Um, it, it was year, years before that. Um, Hope Hospice was doing a benefit and I was called to, to play. So I played one year. They called me again to play the second year. And then... Um, it was a walk and it was from the mucky duck on Captiva up, up and back. And the second year, um, Kevin Neal's mom and dad lived on Captiva. And so I got a call that Kevin Neal was going to play or wanted to play. And I said, so we talked on the phone. He told me he played five string banjo. I said, great, come over to the house. You know, let's run through some songs and then we can do the, we'll back you up or you'll jump in with us and we'll do some some of that stuff like uh, we did a Beatles song um, I've just seen a face I can't forget the time or place bing bing did it ding 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 you know it's really fun and so we we hit it off and so when he comes into town he'll uh, usually come over with his family because I've again I, my music's part of his family before I knew him his mom and dad were fans of mine and and brothers and sisters knew me and so so that's how that happened. 
So it's always fun. I got a really neat tape of us recording at his mom's on her porch. Oh, wow. I mean, when we were not recording, we were practicing, we were learning songs and she decided she'd do a phone phone film of it. It's like Saturday morning. We, she's got coffee out there for us. We're looking pretty, pretty funky, you know. But, no, he's great. He's great. He's a wonderful man. Again, nicest guy on the planet. Very kind, very thoughtful, you know. Great to hear. Great to hear that too, because I'm a fan of his. So it's nice to know he's a he's a nice person. Oh yeah. Good deal. Uh, out of all the places that you've played, not just in Sanibel in that area, but just in, you know anywhere in Florida in general, uh, do you have a favorite place that you've played in Florida? A favorite venue, uh, club, lounge? Well, I think, yeah, I mean the South Seas, the Chadwick's thing was unbelievable because I had a budget for a band, a full band. And we and I did the stage, you know, it was just perfect. I put up all these backlights. I did all the design. I put up palm trees. I had birds, you know. I designed the whole stage. And and uh, when our gal singers would do a song, I had a a light that would come down. And I did all the lights with my feet, you know, because we didn't have sound guys or light guys. But we had a EAWs, these great speakers and just magnificent sound. And um, and it we had, it sounded great. It sounded great to us. We could hear when it was before any of the in ear monitors and stuff. We had floor monitors, but it was a perfect room and sounded good in there. And people danced and families came and the kids could dance on the floor and you know just all of this stuff. It was like the best situation that I can remember. I can't imagine. And it way better than being on a big stage and, and being in the big time. Way, way, way better. It's so intimate and you could just hear everything and and the music we did. We had a, all the bands, you know, because a lot of my players would come and go depending on how their lives were going. But the bands were always great. The guys that played in my band were just, and girls, were absolutely spectacular. Spectacular. I mean, I get these young people out of the university, the the conservatory, Cincinnati Conservatory, and uh, boy, they were just smart, smart, great kids. And they they they'd like all the drum things. I'd just hum things, and they'd be writing it out. They'd write out all. I have a whole book of the drum parts from my records that one of those kids did. Funny, um, uh, the difference, you know. Henry Winkler would come in there and and um, all these different guys, you know, it just, and and I remember the guys from Jensen Resorts driving a damn golf cart in the front door to the dance floor, that kind of stuff, just like people would, it was, it was wild. It was good. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of being on stage, what was your most awkward stage moment you could share? Oh, golly. Last week, when I forgot the words, the second verse to Captiva Moon. No, I don't, I don't know. Uh, yeah. How does that happen? <laughs> oh, yeah, I get distracted. McLean says, you, if somebody walks in the door that you know and they're waving at you and stuff, and we're in the middle of the damn song, and you know, <laughs> you lose where we are. And that is exactly what happens. These people talk to me, or they'll come up while I'm singing and want to, hey, how's your house? I mean, you know, God bless them, but yeah, I am trying to sing. You're right. You're trying to, you're right, you're right. That's but, they're, but, they're, but they're lovely. Everybody, I'm so happy. I have 
anybody who wants to hear it. So very, very, very thankful. As we kind of close things out, I want to kind of turn it over to you to kind of close out the interview. Uh, any last words you want to share to fans, supporters of yours? Just in closing, I will turn it over to you, Danny. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can't tell you how how much um, I appreciate the many, many, many years of uh, being able to, to play for people, play for you guys and make some music, record some music that you like. There's a chill in the morning air Dark water gently flows Not a soul around anywhere Just the birds in the mangroves as I slide in my old canoe It takes me back in time To where life seemed more simple People seemed more kind When my crazy world starts closing in And my balance slips away you can find me in my old canoe Out on Tarpon Bay Blues and greens of a morning mist Reminds me of Monet The mullet jump the dolphins swim The herons dance the bird ballet Slowly paddling along the shore The peacefulness I feel Helps me to reaffirm Nature's power to heal When my crazy world starts closing in And my balance slips away You can find me in my old canoe Out on Tarpon Bay Tarpon